Lord God, we pray that you'd be present to us in the preaching of your word, that we would be renewed in heart and mind and spirit, and grow in the knowledge and love of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. My name's Father Mike. If I haven't gotten to meet you, uh, it's a pleasure to be back with you all again this morning, and uh, so thankful that Father Joe asked me to stand in for him this morning. So thank you again. You might remember that uh, my wife and I are parents to five daughters, and so I'm way outnumbered all the time. Uh, they're, they're growing quickly, though. They're in college and finishing high school age right now. But I was thinking this week about a story of my second daughter. It was many years back, when she was about two and a half, just, just almost three years old. And her and her mom were going around and visiting uh, a couple of different preschools to see where she might feel the most at ease and might best fit for preschool. It was like in the spring, so it would be the, in the fall. So they went to this one nearby our house, and they said, yeah, come on in, and you can sit through the class and kind of observe and take part in what's going on and see if you like it. So there they were, and they were sitting in the circle, and the teacher was telling the children in the preschool Children, boys and girls, we want you to know that you can be anything that you want. You can be anything in this world that you want to be when you grow up. And she's elaborating on this and really giving lots of encouragement. And then the teacher said, now let's go around the circle and you can say what you'd like to be when you grow up. Remember, you can be anything that you want to be. And so they start going around the circle and little Johnny says he wants to be a firefighter and uh Mary says she's going to be a doctor, and uh, the next one says she's going to be a nurse and whatever, and, and so on and so on. So it gets to my two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, and she's very thoughtful, and she still is to this way today. She's very thoughtful and taking it all in and all the encouragement you can be, anything you want to be. And so they say, now to our, our visitor here, what would you like to be, sweetheart, when you grow up? She paused for a minute, and she said, a gerbil. <laughs> Just double take. A gerbil? Yeah, I'd like to be a gerbil. And all the, as you can imagine, those preschool kids love that. Because then after that, there was no more doctor, lawyer, nurse. Everybody wanted to be a mountain lion and a dog and a frog and different things like that. We always enjoy that story, but it's also a good reminder that we can't actually be anything that we want to be. But, and especially in light of what we'll look at in the scriptures today, we can always choose to follow Jesus. We can't be anything that we want to be, but we can always choose to follow Jesus. We're going to look a little bit this morning at what that looks like and how that plays out in our lives. Let me uh, reread just a portion of the gospel lesson that was just proclaimed. Matthew 4 Starting in verse 18, Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets. And he called to them, 
Immediately, they left their boat and their father and followed him. That story is striking to me in a number of ways. One word that jumps out to me is the word immediately. I try to picture the, the scenario. Here they are, these sets of brothers at work, doing their daily thing. Nothing fancy. Mending nets in a boat. Daily work. And they hear the voice of Jesus say, follow me. And somehow and in some way the response was immediate. It says it twice. And for both, immediately they left their nets. They left their work. They left what they were doing and began to follow Jesus. What is that what is that immediate following of Jesus? Or what can that look like in our lives? Let's think about it a bit. In order to do that, I want to switch over to another section of the gospel and another story which might be familiar, but I believe it, it pairs with this one very well. It's in Luke chapter 14, if you want to follow along. Luke chapter 14. Beginning in verse 25, the cost of being a disciple. A large crowd was following Jesus. He turned around and said to them, If you want to be my disciple, you must hate everyone else by comparison. Your father, your mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross... And follow me. You cannot be my disciple. Now, it's a couple things to unpack here. We hear the word hate, and it makes you tense up a little bit, cringe a little bit, right? Unless you hate your father and mother, wife and children, other things. Jesus is doing a comparative here. He's saying, in order to be a disciple, it's not calling us to hate anyone. That would be opposite of everything else we see in the heart of Jesus and in the Gospels. He's saying by comparison to be so much following Jesus, so focused in that direction, so drop your nets and immediately follow, that it would seem like attachments to all these other things, good things by the way, would seem like you hated them because you're so here that you would think that these things that would normally be good and positive and uh, healthy attachments, it would seem like you would hate them. So it's, it's a comparative term. It's saying he's holding up things that we would normally really prioritize and saying if, you, if it doesn't look so much that you're following me that it almost appears as if you hate these things, then you cannot be my disciple. Let me say... Something, too, about, as we talk about this discipleship process. A disciple's a follower. A disciple's one who uh, lives and walks and moves in the teachings of their teacher. Jesus is talking about the counting the cost of following him and being his disciple. But that's different than, or it's distinguished against our identity as sons and daughters of God through Christ Jesus. So it's in other words what I'm saying is it's it's not 
following God, following Christ, in order to be approved of more by God, in order to be loved more. Or there's not, you know, this gradation of, well, God loves these the best because these are my disciples and they follow me and they drop their nets immediately and they did it right. We know from scriptures that disciples like us so often did not do it right. That's what God's grace and God's love is about. We are in Christ as we receive what Jesus has done for us on the cross in his life and death and resurrection for our salvation and for our forgiveness of our sins. As we receive that, we are in Christ. We are sons and daughters. We are loved and absolutely accepted and part of God's family. That's not what we're talking about, whether someone is or isn't a disciple. That's sort of the base from which talking about. Now that we are, have received Christ, that we are part of his family and called by his own name. What, what does that look like? How does that play out in our lives? Being a disciple. We might think of it this way. Someone who's going into the military. They sign up, go to boot camp, get stationed. One thing in our culture, in our mindset, that's super easy for us to understand is when you go into the military and you sign up for that and you make that commitment, you do so knowing that then the things that happen are not optional. When it's early in the morning and it's time to get up and get going and do all the things, you sign up and you go in knowing that it's not, well, I'm going to hit the snooze bar today. Or I'm a, I'm a soldier today, sort of, but not tomorrow. We have a really easy time understanding that when that commitment is made to the military, the lifestyle that follows, the priority, is really obvious. The military says, we are going to be the first priority. We're going to do and live and follow the way it's set out before you. That's what you signed up for. And so in thinking of it that way, not that God is militaristic and not that we've been drafted into God's service. We've chosen to follow Jesus. But I'm speaking in terms of the priority, where it lands in our priorities. Let me back up a bit, too, in the same chapter of Luke 14, starting in verse 7. Jesus, when he noticed that all who had come to the dinner table were trying to sit in the seats of honor near the head of the table, he gave them this advice. When you are invited to a wedding feast, don't sit in the seat of honor. What if someone who is more distinguished than you has also been invited? The host will come and say, Give this person your seat. Then you'll be embarrassed and you'll have to take whatever seat is left at the foot of the table. Instead, take the lowest place at the foot of the table. Then when your host sees you, he will come and say, Friend, we have a better place for you. Then you'll be honored in front of all the other guests. And these words from Jesus. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. It's one of the keys here. What does it look like? What does it mean to decide to follow Jesus? To immediately leave whatever that thing is that we're doing and follow Jesus. Whoever exalts themselves will be humbled and whoever humbles themselves will be exalted. Jesus gives this 
illustration about seating at a banquet and whether you have the best seat or lower seat or whether you're transferring from here and there and on the surface level it's very obvious what he's talking about I was thinking that seating today is still a big deal it's a restaurant or an airplane I'm actually taking a a, a flight tomorrow for a, a work related trip and I have the budget upon budget upon budget ticket so it's very clear on it that you don't get to pick your own seat. They're going to assign it when they want to, pay extra for bags, pay extra to sit down on the plane. I don't know, pay extra for everything. And there's all these choices, you know, because still today to us, where you sit, how comfortable it is, or even just being able to choose, I like the aisle, I like the window, not the middle, that sense of control, if you will, uh, is really important. And so airlines and other places have picked up on it. Said, oh, well, we can, we can have you pay for those things to pick your seat and how nice your seat is and how wide it is and all of those kind of things. Seating is still a big issue. So the question that we might take with us in our hearts this morning is, what would it look like to let Jesus seat us in our lives? What would it look like to let Jesus seat us? Think of it too when you go into a restaurant and you're greeted by the host or hostess. Say how many are in your party and they say, come on. And you start walking. Isn't there that, those moments, unless you have a reservation or unless you, there's a specific, you know exactly what table you're going to, isn't there that moment of, hmm, I wonder if we're going to get a good table or not a good table? Are we going to be the loud part or too close to the bathroom or... A booth or a table, you know, there's that uncertainty there for a moment. And then sometimes you like where you get sat and sometimes you don't. We feel that just on a human level. What would it look like if we were saying to Jesus as we choose to follow him? Jesus, I'm okay with you seating me where you would have me. I'm okay with following you to wherever you would station me. Whatever you would give me to do. I'll let go of these things that I was doing that are important, that are even good, and I'll follow you. What would it look like to trust Jesus, to seat us? In other words, I think of it this way, of like as there, there are these seats in life that you, we see people and we ourselves, we, we dive for, we rush toward. I want that seat. I want to sit there and not there. We exalt ourselves. There's lots of different seats. For different people, it's, it's all manner of different things. It's whatever we value. It's whatever we say, I really want that. I was thinking, for myself, I can make them into two categories. There's two seats that I really am drawn to on a day-to-day basis. The seat of comfort and the seat of control. I really like to be comfortable in big and small ways. And I hope I don't see myself as a controlling person. But when I think about my trip tomorrow and I know I don't know where I'm going to sit, I have to admit it gives me a little angst. So that, oh, I guess I'm a little more controlling than I'd like to think. Not having every detail down. So a question I reflect on is, are there those seats that I'm diving for, exalting myself, 
exerting myself, saying, yes, Jesus, I'm following you in most of the ways of my life, so long as I'm sitting here, so long as I get to pick, so long as it's comfortable. It's a human nature coming in. It's almost not a matter of values. You know, if we went around this morning and said, share your, your most important values, there might be some differences, but I bet most of us would probably say something like God, family, country, health, safety, kids, grandkids, things like that. Our house, our home, you know, we all probably have very similar set of values. It's not so much what the values are, it's what order they appear in. Again, the military image. Military probably says, look, you can have lots of values, but we're going to be the first one. It's a bit, not in a militaristic way, but it's a bit of what Jesus is saying. That is the cost of being a disciple. It's not forced upon us. He says, come, follow me. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to be a disciple, to be a follower, to be about God's business, to have God working in and through us to bring about his purposes, to glorify his name. It's an invitation. But as we take the invitation, we count the costs. We're saying, okay, say, if I'm dropping my nets, my work, my, my control, if I'm dropping, if I'm getting out of my boat, my comfort, my preference, and I'm following Jesus, choosing to make that the first of all commitments. What would it look like if we let Jesus seat us rather than, I'll seat myself, thank you, and I'll follow you sometimes, most of the time. This is the cost of being a disciple. And again, it has nothing to do with how much God loves us. He loves us fully, completely, unconditionally. He's teaching us the dynamic of what it looks like to choose him, to follow him. We read this, this moment in Scripture where James and John, they heard Jesus say, come follow me, and it was a big milestone watershed moment. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. There's those moments in our life we make big, memorable decisions. Maybe at, uh, on our wedding day, standing at, in front of the altar and take, taking those vows and making those promises. But anyone who's experienced marriage knows that that promise on that day was the first. It was a public one. It was a memorable one. It was a celebrated one. But it was the first of many, 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 many more choices to say, I'm choosing to go this direction. I'm choosing this life. I'm choosing you. Jesus is saying, the cost of being a disciple There are those moments where we take big steps of faith, where we drop this and go this way. And just as much, there's those times when the other 99.9% of our life, when we're choosing again and again and again to follow Jesus. We're choosing again to let Jesus seat us. 
rather than saying, I'll seat myself. Thank you very much. Here's a couple of questions that we might ponder. What seats in my life, what seats in your life, are the most attractive? Which, what are your go-to seats? Saying, Jesus, I'll follow you. And I'll follow you wholeheartedly, but uh, I really want to do it from that chair. And not to say that those are bad things. Again, it's just where in the priority list they fall. Another question to think. Why am I afraid to let Jesus seat me? For some, we, we think of when we talk about this dashing and diving for seats, we sort of automatically think of front seats because that's what the story was about. The, the honorable seats, the seat of recognition, the seat of power, the seat of upfront, the seat of being noticed and appreciated and rewarded and all that. But for some folks, they're perfectly happy to say, I don't want or need any of that. My favorite seat, and this is no knock on anybody in the back, <laughs> my favorite seat is in the back row. And oftentimes mine really is because I like to just kind of hang out and take it all in. So sometimes my comfort zone is, yeah, sure, easy. I don't want the, the front seat. I don't want the head of the table. But are there times in our life where maybe I'm holding back and the Lord is saying, as a matter of fact, I do have a seat up here for you. I have a seat of service for you. I have a seat of um, doing for others even in a way that's somewhat costly or inconvenient. But it's that yes in following Jesus. So it kind of goes both ways. It's not about whether it's the front seat or the back seat. It's about who is seating us. That question of, why am I afraid to let Jesus seat me? I want to hone in and just go a little deeper on that one question before we pray and close uh, this message this morning. I'll give you an example. Much of how we approach God and respond to God and even respond to this call to follow God is based on what we have chosen to believe about God, about his character, who he is and what he's about. Is he trustworthy? Is he worthy of following, of giving up this and embracing that? And in our fallen state, the world, the flesh, the devil, our, our vulnerability is to get this idea of who God is, is why we need the scriptures, to get it a little mixed up. It goes all the way back to the garden with Adam and Eve. And the serpent's favorite trick then and even still today. Sowing seeds of doubt. Did God really say? Trying to get Eve to say, well, well what, did it, what, what did he really say? Could he eat of any tree of the garden? And that subtle twist of introducing the serpent did that doubt. Well, maybe God's hiding something from you. Maybe God doesn't want you to have all these good things. And some fear must have struck up in her heart and said, oh, yeah, maybe so. I never thought about that. Before that, I was just perfectly content, having all my needs met, just being perfectly loved by God. But, hmm, maybe God isn't on the up and up. Maybe he's mostly good, but 
kind of out to get me. The serpent still uses that trick today all the time in our fallen minds and our fearful hearts because we're vulnerable to it. A lot of people at some point, as most people at some point or another, we fall into the worry that God's mad at us, that he's out to get us. Friends, God's not out to get you. If he was, he would have gotten you already. (laughs) He's that good. In Christ, we are at peace with God. Jesus has paid and has overcome and has conquered sin and death. And our own fearfulness, fallenness, sin and death. But sometimes on this side of heaven, we still can get a little shaky about who God is because it almost seems too good to be true, that he could be that loving, that entirely good. A lot of times, how we perceive God, it gets shaped really early on. With our life experience or our key relationships with parents and whether those were mostly positive or mostly difficult, all those things get in the mix and then we, we put that on God. So here's a, way, here's a way that I get afraid to let Jesus seat me. Somehow, some way, one of my Achilles heels my vulnerabilities is I'll get into this, where I'll think God wants me to work and work and work and work. I want to follow Jesus. I want to be productive. I want to build the kingdom. All good things. But I stretch it some to that fear comes in. I better not, better not let up. better not take the foot off the gas. God wants me to work hard. And he does. But not like I'm saying when it gets into a fearful way. Sometimes I might fear to let Jesus seat me because I'll fear that, oh, if he seats me, I'll probably never get any rest. I'll probably never get any downtime. I'll probably never get any um, refreshment. When you say it out loud here in church, it sounds ridiculous because we know in our minds that God is not like that. But in the little everyday ebb and flow of life, sometimes it's easy to get confused. I ran across the familiar words this week of Psalm 23. Makes me lie down in green pastures. Leads me to still waters. The message paraphrase translation words it this way, Eugene Peterson says, he gives me a chance to catch my breath. That really spoke to me because that's the true heart of God. If I let Jesus seat me, he'll give me things to do. He'll stretch me out of my comfort zone. I'll feel sometimes uncomfortable because he'll be more in control than me. But he'll also feed my soul. He'll also pastor me and shepherd me and take care of me and give me a chance to catch my breath and to rest and to enjoy things. I don't have to grab for that myself. I don't have to dive for that seat. I can trust Jesus to seat me because as he seats me, that's all there. Why? Because it's all in his heart, in his character. Jesus says count the cost to be a disciple, to let go of this and to embrace that. And it is serious and it is weighty, but it's not doom and gloom. It's not a a sentence to misery for the rest of our life. 
I'm serving God, so I'm not going to have any fun. (laughs) Fun and joy and life that's truly life and rest and activity and comfort and stretching, which always is where growth happens. Growth doesn't happen in the comfort chair. It happens in the uncomfortable chair. All of that is in the life of being a disciple. And it's worth it. If, if for no other thing, for the glory of God, it's worth it. But it is life and life abundantly. That's what he promised us. Not to steal, kill, or destroy. That's the enemy stuff. Jesus says, I've come to bring you life. And it's this one simple term. God doesn't make too hard of terms for those who are seeking him. It's just simply, will you seat yourself? Or Jesus says, will you let me seat you? Come, follow me. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, it is good to be reminded of your goodness in your word this morning. We confess that sometimes we get afraid of or confused by or even doubting of how good you really are, how worthy you are to follow and the life that that would bring. We just confess that to you, Lord, and ask that you, by the power of your Spirit, Remind us in our deep, in our heart, mind, soul, and spirit of your perfect, unconditional love. Perfect love that casts out all fear. Jesus, would you incline our hearts and minds to follow you? Not so much out of duty or obligation or out of fear, but out of love, out of a response to your call and to your voice. May all other things, people, places, preferences, activities, may all other things just pale in comparison to walking with you. Help us, God, to trust you, to seed us. Work in us, God, and glorify yourself. We pray in your holy name. Amen.